Hello, church and ministry leaders. Welcome to the podcast that takes the perplexity out of being a church leader. This week, we're answering the question, why should churches start and maintain a robust small groups ministry? And we'll consider nine suggestions for starting and maintaining that program. I'm your host, Kerry Holton. This week, our special guest is Cameron John. I consider Cameron as somewhat of an expert on the subject of small groups programs in churches. For his entire career in ministry, he has been an avid fan, if you will, of small groups in the church. Not only has he led various small groups, but in recent years, he has been a small groups consultant for churches all across the South and Southwest. In addition, he has preached full-time for churches in Oklahoma and Georgia. Recently, I interviewed Cameron to talk about the rationale for a vibrant small groups program in churches. And in addition, he provided nine very practical recommendations for church leaders who are wanting to start a small groups program in their church. I know, I know that you're going to derive a lot of benefit from what he has to say in this podcast. So here is part one of my interview with Cameron John. Hello, Cameron. Glad to have you with us today. How are you? Oh, great, Kerry. Thank you so much for having me. It's just a pleasure to have you on the podcast, especially to talk about small groups, smaller groups of Christians who worship together. I know you have a lot you can share on this subject. Let me just get started by asking you this. I think there are still people out there who probably wonder why churches should have a small group program. Why should they even be involved with small groups? What would you say is the rationale for a church having small groups? I think that's a great question, and I think it's a fair question. It needs to be asked by anyone who's considering uh, small groups. And I think there's a lot of just great benefits, theological benefits, emotional, social, service, all those kinds of things. But let me just be very specific. First thing I would say is a rationale is that small groups actually increase the application and the learning reinforcement of the word, because you're uh, taking perhaps what's being uh, heard on Sunday morning in a, a, a worship assembly, and you're taking it into the small group and letting that group chew on that, meditate on that, discuss it, dialogue, and to have that double reinforcement, hearing it first, and then to actually discuss it and apply it. I think is good for uh, any kind of adult learner, especially. Good. I also think that in small groups, uh, surface relationships move to deeper fellowship. At least it has the opportunity. It's very easy to be a part of a large assembly and just kind of blend in and, and not really have the kind of one another relationships that are described in the New Testament. But a small group situation practiced over a long period of time actually help people move from just surface level, you know, hi, how are you doing? What How's work? To things that are beneath the surface and more meaningful, you know, how's your faith? What are you struggling with? Especially as the word opens your heart and you need to talk about those kinds good, of things. Good, good. A third 
piece of rationale, I would say, would be that it is a small venue where people can more personally experience grace and truth, just as we follow Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. And again, it's the interaction of being with people that actually promotes those kinds of experiences. Uh, a couple of other just practical uh, or precedent type of piece of rationale is that uh, small groups follow a first century pattern of making disciples in small groups. Mm. Paul encouraged Timothy and Titus to encourage, and you have to remember that these were house churches. These weren't right. uh, in the first century. And these house churches, uh, that's how they met and that's how they influenced each other. In the Hebrews, you know, we're told to encourage one another when you meet. Uh, that's the kind of atmosphere that Paul promotes in the Corinthian church and uh, in some of his other letters, this encouraging atmosphere. And so it, it was all about promoting discipleship. Uh, also, pre- from following a precedent, it follows a first century example of meeting in homes mm-hmm. all across the Mediterranean. Uh, the Jerusalem church that first began uh, meeting in homes, especially eating a meal together. There's something magic about eating with people. And I think the the fellowship, those, those four things, you know, that are mentioned in Acts chapter two, we'll talk a little bit more about here in this list. But one of the magical things that just does some incredible group dynamics, uh, it helps us be better human beings. It re-energizes us, refocuses us, reorients us. That's done in that, that smaller setting like a home. Mm-hmm. Another kind of rationale I would say is that it gives you the opportunity or a church the opportunity to increase connection and retainment of visitors, new members, and fringe. Again, it's just really easy for people to come to an assembly and then just kind of get lost in the mix. Mm-hmm. But a small group is a as a self-activated kind of people that are looking out for each other rather than relying on the leadership to do all of that kind of shepherding. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that the people in the, the small group are shepherds. They don't have that official title or whatever, but they, the shepherds can't do all the shepherding that's required in any given church for especially retainment. That re- relationships are key when it comes to uh, retainment uh, visitors, new members, and especially the fringe you know, the ones who are barely there, the ones who are barely connected, there's an opportunity to uh, promote retainment. Another kind of rationale is intergenerational relationships and mentoring or modeling is fostered. You know, like I mentioned earlier, Paul said to Timothy and Titus that older women should be teaching younger women. Older men should be uh, setting example for younger men. There are not many natural opportunities in an assembly. In fact, in a lot of our churches, we're segregated by age. There's a funny thing about discipleship. It works better uh, if there is intergenerational modeling and and, um, mentoring going on, rather rather than completely desegregated by age. Mm, Or segregated by age, I should say segregated by age. Does that make sense? Ken? Sure, sure it does. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, uh, let me just add a few more. Here oh, real please quick, do. Okay, here. Because I think this speaks to a lot of the the concerns of anybody who's questioning or exploring the idea of small groups. I really do think small groups have given the opportunity for every church to improve their communication, awareness, ability to more consistently meet people's needs. And what I mean by that is those tasks of benevolence 
information, emotional support, visitation, crisis management are broken down into smaller, more manageable bits within the confines uh, or the realm, the creativity, the, the energy of a small group, rather than trying to assign that just to a few ministers or to a few elders. Mm-hmm. So we're actually spreading out our ability to do those things. Of course, small groups also benefit any church by uh, promoting an increased devotion to prayer, mm. an increased uh, sense of involvement because people naturally use their giftedness in small groups. They don't have to be asked mm-hmm. formally. They don't have to have a job description. They see the needs, they do it uh, because it's right there in front of them. And anybody who has been in church leader knows how hard it is to promote involvement. And when you find something that does it naturally, that's that's a that's a yes. win. <laughs> uh, and then a couple more things I would add to this, just because I, I I just think uh, speaking to everyone on this, I really think small groups are a farm team for future church leadership. You're promoting the lead in the leaders of these groups the same kinds of attributes that shepherds have for the entire church. Mm-hmm. Their love for each other. They're being self-deprecating, being rather than being self-indulgent, promoting mutuality that Paul promotes. And all those qualities come when you are with people and you begin to serve them and embrace the good, the bad, and the ugly that you find in people. Churches don't have a farm team for future elders. And a lot of churches, as you know, Carrie, are suffering from the lack of leadership, like a lot of organizations. And so small groups give a church a natural place for a uh, farm team for future elders. Mm -hmm. It's an informal, attractive option for lost people. When uh, evangelism becomes a team effort, you know, people invite their friends or can invite their friends to be a part of small groups that are from out the outside of the church to participate in a more informal setting like a small group. And then the final thing I would say, Carrie, and this is the last thing, and I I purposely put it the last thing because I think it's maybe not the most valuable thing in some ways. I'll just say it this way, is it might possibly increase your Sunday p.m. participation. Uh, If you, rather than that small, everybody meeting back at the church building on Sunday night, which in most churches is less than 50%. I really believe you can beat 50% if you have a well-run small group ministry, Mm -hmm. people meeting in homes rather than meeting at the building. Well, listen, we'll just end this podcast right here because you've said, you you have said all that needs to be said about the rationale for small. I mean, that's perfect. So much value to having a small group program that you've pointed out here. Thank you so much for that thorough answer to your question. So here's my next question, Cameron. What would you say, what recommendation would you offer to churches for organizing or for beginning a small group program? Once they're convinced of the rationale, uh, any special tips that you would give them for beginning that program? Yeah, I do. There's not one way to do it. In fact, the longer I've done it, I've seen a lot of different ways that, that seem to work for different groups. But uh, here are some general uh, tips uh, that I would, or recommendations I would recommend. One is I think that these groups have to be voluntary rather than assigned. Let them choose rather than assigning them. Assigning people to groups does not work over time, whereas voluntary 
does. It stands the test of time that people go where they want to go. That doesn't mean you're, you're creating clicks or anything like that. It just means you're giving people the freedom to connect where they have some connections. And remember, people connect for all different reasons. Sometimes they connect just because they have one or two friends in the church, and that's who they need to be with at the time. Mm-hmm. Other people do it because of geographic location. You know, people, especially churches in large cities, need to have options for geographic locations. Same thing goes with time, time schedule. Uh, different groups meet at different times. You're just making it more available. So there's lots of different reasons that people choose different groups. It's not just because they want to be in a clique. Second recommendation is I would say purposefully work hard to keep the groups small. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very tempting to allow groups just to grow large and almost become the size of a Bible class or even a small church. Mm-hmm. The larger it gets, the less benefits you will find from those small groups uh, that small groups offer uniquely different from a large assembly. So you have to build it, plan it, structure it, maintenance it in a way where you can allow enough groups for the membership of the church so that the each of the groups is very small, five to ten people, maybe even seven people that are regularly committed to being a part of it. That allows room for growth, but that also allows a lot of the benefits that we've already mentioned happen. And you have to remember, it makes it more manageable for the average member to do and host a small group because most people don't want to have 30 people or 40 people or 50 people in their home, but they can do five to seven people to fit around their dinner table, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yes, good. Another recommendation is, and I'll just say this, and I I know maybe nobody might agree with it, but I do really believe there's something magical about groups meeting in homes rather than at the building. I mean, there are some exceptions. I know that. I've seen some work at the building. But by far, the best groups are the ones that meet at homes, and they take the place of a current weekly assembly at the building, like Wednesday night or Sunday night, rather than just pinning it on to all the other activities. We're replacing other activities with this and making it a mainstay of what our church does. Mm-hmm. And there are some exceptions to that. And if people wanted to get in the nitty gritty of, of it. I would be able to happy to talk with them. But I do think people need margin. People need energy to live out their faith in their community. Mm-hmm. And if we just program them to death or you know just require activity after activity after activity, they're not going to do anything well. Good. Another recommendation I would say is, at least in a traditional small group sense, is that I would probably recommend that the groups meet out of a regular kind of a month, like four Sunday month, that they meet three out of four Sundays or three out of four of the weeks in a typical month. You purposely plan a Sabbath week for the groups to rest, especially for their leaders to rest, because you can just burn out people. And if you want it to last for a long time, purposely plan Sabbath rest for your groups. We recommend in small groups that they eat together in homes. You know, you're giving people a break from not having to make food. You're giving people a break from not having to make phone calls. Uh, All the other things that are associated with small groups, give them some Sabbath. And that means purposely saying we're going to meet three out of the four weeks and then the rest of it, we're going to take a break. Mm-hmm. Um, another characteristic or recommendation, I guess I would say, is that 
Absolutely. This may be the most important is that you absolutely have leadership slash shepherd approved leaders, small group leaders who agree to training, communication, and continuing education. This is the most important thing, in my opinion, for keeping it running for a long time and provide all those benefits that we mentioned. First of all, your shepherds have to be comfortable with who are the leaders. And then also those shepherd-approved leaders have to agree to regular training, regular communication, and regular continuing education. I know people are busy. I know they work hard, but this has got to be something. It just helps that small group ministry survive over a long period of time, and it keeps the quality at a high level. Mm. Then uh, I would also say allowing the group to make as many logistical choices as possible within their group so that the groups are different from each other. The more freedom you can allow the groups to make some certain logistical choices rather than mandating things to them, the better it will work, mm-hmm. like the location, food, what, how they handle kids, uh, how they multiply. You can coach them. You can provide choices for them, but let them make the choices on those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Good. Another recommendation is I absolutely believe in linking the Sunday morning sermon or an assembly with the small group through the discussion and the dialogue. In other words, the dialogue that takes place in a small group is an extension of your Sunday morning worship. We already talked about the double reinforcement for adult learning that that provides. Right. But I think that it is the secret to having a meaningful group where you're actually opening up scripture. The group is observing scripture, they're meditating on it, they're digesting it, and then they're applying it like they've never done before. And also along with that, eating together, prayer, singing, occasional service projects, and even fun. But let those groups decide that. Don't mandate that. Let them do that. I'd recommend that they have yearly signups and recruiting, that the leaders are recruited on a yearly basis. They know they have a beginning. They know they have an end. Now, a lot of the leaders will re-sign up, and that's great, but you want to give them that kind of freedom and respect to say yes and no, because mm-hmm. people, time changes, their demands change outside of church. And the same thing with people that are part of groups, letting people sign up where they want. Some people want to stay in the exact same group, bless that. And some people love to move around and meet more people or start groups. Bless that. Don't, you know, don't inhibit any of that, but provide a, a beginning and an end. There's something psychologically freeing about that mm-hmm. to know that you're going to be doing something. You're going to do it well for a time and then you're going to stop. Mm-hmm. People need that. Yes. Okay. Yes. And then that means yearly recruiting as well. Not taking advantage of people or not taking them for granted, but individually and personally recruiting them to help lead these groups. I recommend too, you know, so many people follow a a kind of a school calendar in their life because of their kids. Right. And so I would, I would say assigning uh, or linking the groups beginning and end to the beginning and the end of the school year. And then also purposely planning some Sabbath where the groups are not meeting, maybe from after Thanksgiving until the end of the year. December is a heavy month for Mm -hmm. everybody. So take the whole month of December off. You know, maybe there's a short break in the summer or whatever, but you're trying to follow a calendar they're used to, but you're also 
purposely building in times to do it well and in times to, to stop, if that makes sense. There's a lot of other things we could add into that, but that's probably as good as I could do at this point. That's a good list, Cameron. That's very practical. And, you know, one thing I see from what you've said is that you definitely see that the small group program should be a very important part of the church's work. It's not an add-on. It's really at the heart and soul of what the church is about. Thanks, friends, for listening in on my conversation with Cameron John. I hope you discovered many valuable and beneficial reasons for having a small groups program in your church. And I also hope you found many practical suggestions that you heard many wonderful recommendations for starting and maintaining such a program. I want to talk more about this later, but I want you to come back next week. Will you do that next week for part two of my conversation with Cameron when he will give more tips for starting and maintaining a small groups program along with some final words on the value of such a program. So I hope you'll join us next week for the continuation of this conversation. This is the Effective Church Leaders podcast where we offer support to church leaders who want to become better informed, more confident, and more effective in their service to the Lord. 